Let's get this show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. Are not the government. The government is not us. This is the Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O Files. Episode number 67. A very late episode number 67. Oh, oh, um, yeah. Shit's going down. My, uh, my brother decided to join the Marines, so I went to... Uh, I guess I went with him for his, uh, swearing in and things like that. And then, uh, mom got her second surgery. So I'm so good for her. Maybe her shoulder won't kill her anymore. She got the other one done a while back. A lot of news today. Got an announcement today. Uh, big announcement actually. And I'm... It's very possible I'm making a huge mistake. Very, very possible. But, enough about that. Let's get on to today's interesting article to kick it off. This was published on Quillen on May the 22nd of 2019. Written by Zachary Snowden, Snowdon, Snow, so it's Snowden but with an O, Smith. When the authorities tell you to dissent. I'm gonna skip down. Because, uh... Jesus Christ, there's a few paragraphs down, there's a... a <laughs> very telling paragraph. From the article, The first indication I received that something had gone awry at Australia's best university was in a criminology class titled Violence, Trauma, and Reconciliation. According to the University of Melbourne Handbook, this class, quote, considers the forms of trauma people experience as a response to forms of violence and explores how this trauma propels calls for apologies, truth commissions, retribution, and torture. The instructor, Dr. Juliet Rogers, devoted a lecture to female genital mutilation, a natural enough topic for a class on trauma. In Rogers' view, however, the true source of trauma was not the practice of FGM itself, but the, quote, violence of anti-FGM laws. After all, Western societies pressure women into body modification in the form of ear piercings, so who are we to pass judgment on those who practice clitorectomies and infibulations uh, on children? And isn't it true that legislators' supposed concern with FGM is actually motivated by Islamophobia? <laughs> Read this fucking article. It is fascinating shit. It's on Quillet. When the authorities tell you to dissent. I, um... It's horrifying. <laughs> this is horrifying shit in here. And uh, I'm fascinated by it. 
That's today's interesting article. Moving on to news. We have a lot of news to cover today, so I'm going to try and get through this relatively quickly. Published on May the 15th to thefire.org, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, University at Buffalo may lose student defender program. This is written by Susan Kruth. Students at the State University of New York at Buffalo are on the verge of losing a key resource dedicated to protecting their rights, their student defender program. UB student newspaper, The Spectrum, reports that on July 1st, the university will transfer control over student fees from a 49-year-old student-owned organization, Subboard 1, to a, pr- to a private, non-profit organization called the Faculty Student Association. According to The Spectrum, the decision came after an internal review of SBI practices by UB. Thousands have already signed a petition objecting to the change, which is expected to be accompanied by the elimination of several student services, including SBI's Student Defender Program. This cut, in particular, would be a huge loss to the campus community. Student defenders groups exist across the country, and they play several critically important roles in ensuring that students' rights to a fair disciplinary process are respected. Whether they call themselves student rights advocates, student advisors, or something else, group members know their school's disciplinary procedures and are trained to advocate for students accused of misconduct. At a time when accused students are often scared and confused, student defenders serve as a guide explaining their institution's policies and options available to the accused student, what their due process and other rights are, what strategies may be best, and more. In addition to helping students on a case-by-case basis, student defenders often work with administrators to revise policies so all students' rights are better protected. Through FIRE's Student Defenders Program, we help new groups get started, and we help already established groups become stronger. We've heard directly from student defenders how their, assist- how their assistance has helped accused students obtain better, fair outcomes in their disciplinary cases. Several student group leaders have relayed that the administrators they work with are grateful for the way the defenders help procedures run more smoothly and provide continuity between administrations. I'm sure you can hear my cat in the background. He's outside my door, yowling. We've also heard from students who received help from student defenders and said that having a guide through the process significantly improved not on the outcomes of their cases, but also how they felt during the process compared with what they anticipated. All university campuses benefit from programs like these, and the University of Buffalo community is no exception. The university should commit to continuing to fund its student defender program so that students can benefit from this important service without worrying about keeping the program afloat themselves. If it doesn't, Fire stands ready to help. We have grants available to any student defender group that needs supplies or funds for advertising, and we're here to answer questions and join students in pushing back against any other impediments they might encounter in their fight for student rights. Students at the University at Buffalo have raised several other concerns with the university's plan, including FSA's involvement in in an embezzlement scandal and the loss of services like a South Campus Safety Shuttle Bus and a database that helps students find off-campus housing. Disappointingly, students may also lose access to free legal services that they currently use for a range of issues, including those related to housing, driving, and immigration. Additionally, the campus radio station is at risk, meaning that students would have one fewer avenue through which to express themselves and inform their peers. Students said that they felt blindsided by the university's decision to have FSA manage fees, compounding their disapproval about how the university is handling the issue. Fire can't address all these concerns, as many fall outside the scope of our mission, but we'll do our best to help where we can. Blah, blah, blah. Couple more sentences. That's the gist. The student defender stuff is, it really, they really are great programs. If, if you have been fortunate enough to not have to take advantage of them, um, you may not even know that they exist, but they do exist. I had to look into them when I was arrested on campus, uh, when I was in school. There's a, it's, it's a huge 
boon to people who find themselves in trouble and needing assistance. And it's, it's, it's upsetting that people are getting rid of them. These student defender programs, they are, uh, they're instrumental. They really are. And the, the universities, of course, don't give a shit about student rights. They don't care. If there's anything that this show should have illustrated over the past however many years I've been doing this, it's that universities do not give a shit about the rights of their students. Moving on to our next story, published on May 21st, 2019, by Alex Mori, also on the fire. Liberty, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> this, is, this is why I'm ruined by fucking Twitter. Every time I see the word librarian, I read libertarian, and it's terrible. Librarian chose not to censor Doane University's past, so they censored her. Fire and the National Coalition Against Censorship, NCAC. By the way, the NCAC is an excellent organization. Follow them on Twitter. Get updates from them on censorship and anti-censorship activism. They are incredible. Uh, Fire and the National Coalition Against Censorship have sent a joint letter to Nebraska's Duane University objecting to its investigation and suspension of a faculty librarian who curated a photo display of the history of social events at the school, which included photos from university archives showing Duane students from the 1920s who appeared to be wearing blackface. In late April... Doane placed library director Melissa Gomez on mandatory leave after a student complained about an exhibit on the parties of the past, inspired by ongoing national debates surrounding offensive Halloween and party costumes, as well as a national effort to confront the history of blackface in the university's yearbooks. The display, which went up in March, included two photos of students at a 1926 Doane masquerade party who appeared to be wearing blackface. Gomez has since been reinstated, but not before Doane conducted an investigation into whether her use of the photos violated the university's policy on discriminatory harassment. In public statements, Doane's administration falls to the display for lacking, quote, appropriate educational context. While administrators are certainly free, as are students and other faculty members, to criticize the manner of an exhibit and the, and the exhibit itself, subjective evaluations about whether an exhibit is adequately contextualized cannot justify curtailing a curator's right to frame and present it. Fire and NCAC wrote to Dwayne President J-A-C-Q-U-E, uh, I don't know how to read that name, Carter, last week to remind him that Dwayne makes strong academic freedom promises and that these kinds of investigations and mandated warnings tantamount to compelled speech violate those promises. Faculty and institutions like Dwayne promise academic freedom. Uh, ah, that's what I missed. I missed a word. Faculty at institutions that, like Dwayne, promise academic freedom must be free to make a variety of pedagogical choices, including how to discuss, view, or display certain material, even when that material may shock or offend others. While Dwayne is a private university not bound by the First Amendment, private institutions that make such promises are contractually and morally bound to uphold them. As we note in our letter, quote, Courts have found that these kinds of pedagogical choices are protected under the tenets of academic freedom and do not rise to the level of discriminatory harassment. We also reminded Dwayne that his promises of free expression and academic freedom aren't just aspirational. They're a requirement of its accreditation. Dwayne University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission of North Central Association of Colleges and Schools, whose standards require that the accredited institutions be, quote, committed to freedom of expression and the pursuit of truth in teaching and learning. Librarians, we explained, play a crucial role in that pursuit, quote, Librarians facilitate the information gathering and research functions of the university's constituents and often participate in the pursuits of academia themselves, including through teaching, research, and publication. These roles necessarily require freedom from institutional censorship in order to preserve the library's central function within the university. 
To that end, NCAC has developed material and the best practices to, quote, help curators meet the challenges of presenting sensitive materials in these kinds of situations while also guarding free expression. Quote, NCAC recognizes that, in our polarized times, the careful contextualization of exhibitions is important, especially where the mission of the institution is to educate. But decisions about how to frame and contextualize an exhibition should be left to the curator or organizer of the exhibition. To guide curators, librarians, and administrators, NCAC has proposed a set of guidelines, smart tactics, curating difficult content, which includes a handbook to help curators meet the challenges of presenting sensitive materials. FIRE and NCAC have asked Dwayne to rescind any punishment related to this matter and to clarify its commitment to academic and expressive freedom. We will update you when it does. Um, NCAC, again, wonderful organization. I love them. Uh, I follow them on Twitter and I keep up with some of the... With, with the stuff that they do, they do a lot of great shit. They've got anti-censorship weeks that they they basically, uh, they, they'll give press to censored materials and books. They, they're just great. I love them. I love NCAC. Moving on to the next story. This is another free speech story from Reason. Uh, they changed the title of, of where they publish their stuff. They no longer have the hit and run blog, it appears. Uh, they've, they've changed it to simply a news feed under reason.com slash latest, I believe. So the hit and run blog is dead. Long live the hit and run blog. A man fights back after his profane rant about a deputy ended in harassment charges, written by Zuri Davis and published on the 22nd of May. John Goldsmith called the local deputy a stupid some bitch on Facebook. That's in that whole thing is in quotes. <laughs> stupid some bitch on Facebook is in quotes. So the deputy superior charged Goldsmith with writing a threatening statement. The American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, filed a lawsuit on behalf of an Iowa man after he was charged with third-degree harassment over profane Facebook rant about local law enforcement. According to the lawsuit, John Goldsmith of Red Oak witnessed Adams County Sheriff's Deputy Corey Dorsey stop a motorist and conduct a drug dog search on a vehicle at a festival in July 2018. No drugs were found. Goldsmith also said he saw Dorsey body slam another man. When Goldsmith later saw the man's mugshot on Facebook, he shared the picture in a post criticizing Dorsey. Goldsmith called Dorsey out by name and accused him of being butthurt that the drug search was fruitless. He also called him a stupid bitch and offered to hire Dorsey to walk his dog and pick up his shit if he were fired over the incident. You go, Goldsmith. That August, Sergeant Paul Hogan, Dorsey's supervisor, filed charges against Goldsmith. An affidavit formally accused Goldsmith of intentionally writing, quote, a threatening and vulgar statement about Corey Dorsey on Facebook. The charges against Goldsmith were dismissed in October after his attorney filed a motion to dismiss on First Amendment grounds. Quote, the actions taken against Mr. Goldsmith by Adams County are textbook case of retaliating against someone for exercising their First Amendment rights, said ACLU Iowa legal director Rita Bettis Austin in a press release. Rita? Find a different job because you're working for a shit or shithouse organization. Um, quote, police are not allowed to try to put people in jail because they annoy the police or say things the police disagree with on social media or otherwise. Goldsmith's situation draws interesting similarities to a Michigan case that was settled last year. When James Webb saw an officer handing someone a ticket in front of a gas station, he began to blast NWA's fuck the police. The officer ticketed Webb for being for a misdemeanor noise violation later said he took issue with the word fuck being wrapped in public, despite saying it himself several times prior. Webb faced a $500 fine and 93 days in jail, but was acquitted by a jury. So, uh, in celebration of that story, fuck the police. This is an interesting piece that was also written on Reason, and I find, I find it, I don't know, I find it kind of fascinating, because this stuff's, 
go in one direction or another, and I'm 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 interested in it. I want to follow this. This is written by Ronald Bailey, also published on 22nd. Are we seeing early signs of a facial recognition techno panic? Or are Americans simply wising up to the dangers posed by cops having their, quote, face prints on file? San Francisco's Board of Supervisors voted last week to ban law enforcement use of facial recognition technology. Good on you, San Francisco. Golf clap. The board enacted the ban in order to forestall such possible misuses by police as surreptitiously tracking citizens' activities in real time and misidentification of innocence based on a still-buggy technology. The usually perspicacious, that's a good word, Mercatus Center Technology Policy Maven Adam Tierer suggests that the ban may be an instance of the great facial recognition techno-panic of 2019. Is he right? It is true that some critics have called for banning both the private and government use of facial recognition technology. One of their biggest worries is that government agencies, at the expense of our privacy and liberty, will someday demand that private, quote, face print databases and video surveillance archives turn over their data in the name of national security. Turing acknowledges that the, quote, critics are correct that a real danger exists in facial recognition that would make it easier for governments to surveil our movements and profile us in ways that are repressive and unjust. Well, yes. Then he sanguinely continues that, quote, we have faced this same problem many times before. We can and will learn how to govern facial recognition technologies the same way we have with many other tools that have both dangerous and beneficial uses. Yes, we have faced that problem before, and I would argue that our efforts to, quote, govern other surveillance, quote, tools do not offer hopeful precedents. For example, through Edward Snowden's revelations about federal domestic spying, we know that government agencies have, and still do, uh, rifle largely unhindered through private communications databases at will. Perhaps federal espionage and law enforcement agencies will be more... Pun uh, whoa, man. Whew. This dude's vocabulary. This is a reason post, my man. We'll be more punctilious about observing our constitutional right to privacy. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. That's a new word for me. I like it, but God. Uh, with respect to this emerging surveillance technology, but, would, but I wouldn't count on it. In any case, the San Francisco board's ban does not apply to private uses of facial recognition technology, only to law enforcement and other city agencies. Back in March, I cited the Nonpartisan Watchdog Project on Government Oversight, POGO, Report calling Facing the Future of Surveillance, uh, report called Facing the Future of Surveillance, that outlines the dangers to liberty posed by this technology. The POGO report's recommendations for limiting potential government abuse of this technology included the requirement that the government obtain a probable cause warrant whenever it seeks to use facial recognition to identify an individual, uh, as they should. Due to the high risk of misidentification, POGO also called for an indefinite moratorium on incorporating real-time facial recognition systems into police body cameras. The report also recommends that the government should not be permitted to regularly scan locations and events, tag every individual without identifying them by name, save and update those profiles, and then use this stockpile of data to match a recorded profile once an individual becomes a person of interest. Creation of mass databases of these, quote, metadata profiles would severely undermine privacy and would risk chilling public participation in sensitive activities. For, this, for his part, Tier suggests that we should prohibit real-time facial recognition tracking by governments while allowing its use as an ex-post investigative tool. That's good. Tier also recommends, quote, Law enforcement requests for privately held facial records should also require a subpoena and high standard of proof of need. Law enforcement officials should also be required to be more transparent about their facial recognition policies, safeguard any biometric identifiers they collect, delete data after a set period of time, an added problem with the current data uh, debate about facial recognition technology is that 
it puts the cart before the horse. We need to consider what is worth policing at all and come to grips with the problem of overcriminalization. Despite decrying an alleged, quote, techno panic, Tyr basically ends up agreeing with the POGO's report recommendations for forestalling possible use of facial recognition by law enforcement. Meanwhile, a bipartisan group of congressional representatives have apparently just agreed to draft legislation, possibly including a moratorium to regulate law enforcement use of facial recognition. Given Congress's ongoing refusal to rein in domestic spying programs, legislative action on this issue deserves close monitoring. Ultimately, it doesn't seem too panicky to observe the principles of federalism such that states and localities can explore ways to prevent law enforcement abuse of this emerging surveillance technology. I am... Well, I'll tell you this first off. I cannot wait for our cyberpunk future in which we all walk around with with uh, interesting and um, asymmetrical patterns painted onto our faces. I look forward to that day because, god damn, I want the cyberpunk future so bad. Uh, because that's how you beat facial recognition. Um, you can do it with masks, but those are physical things. Face paint is something that would be very hard to make illegal. You paint your face with asymmetrical patterns, and it, a lot of times it'll fool facial recognition. It has a hard time picking up on those things. Juggalo paint, actually, is pretty good at fooling facial recognition because it takes the uh, the features that facial recognition looks for and it moves them around. You know, you get a big, I just bumped my mic, you get a big tall eyebrow ridge and a jawline in black that's not a real jawline. Interesting shit that you can do with face paint. And I want that future so bad. Fooling facial recognition. It's one of the things I'm very interested in doing and I, I'm very bullish on it, I'll just say. Our next story was provided to us by Cryptic Cynic on the Discord. Published on May the 21st, 2K07. Uh, written by Patriana Bulsuwan. I assume that's how that's pronounced. I'm sure it is not. High school students in Shoreline push for free condoms on campus. Shoreline, Washington. A group of high school students in Shoreline has launched a public campaign to make contraceptives more accessible on campus. 18-year-old seniors uh, Jose Luis Gandara and Anna Gross came up with the idea during their senior civics project. They need to create a plan to promote positive change in the community, and the issue of unsafe sex in schools is a huge concern. Quote, I had friends that have had pregnancy scares and have gotten STDs, and honestly, if they had been using contraception, perhaps if that happened through the high school, it wouldn't happen to them, said Gross. Uh, Gandara said free access to contraceptives would help students who wouldn't get them otherwise for a variety of reasons, from financial to social stigmas. Quote, there's this idea that if you provide condoms, it would lead students to have risky behaviors, said Gandara, but I don't think it would really do that. If anything, it's to make sure students are having safe sex and being responsible. The students said they first approached their principal about the change, then the school board, but in the last two months, they've received no clear answers. We reached out to Shoreline School District. They said administrators are considering the students' request, quote, I think they feel the urgency from students, said Curtis Campbell, the school district's public, administra- uh, public information officer, but the students have to understand that it will take some time. Campbell said with a potential new policy, administrators will have to consider how it will be carried out. Quote, are we just handing the condoms out? Are we putting them in a bowl in the nurse's office? Do we have to provide other kinds of information to go along with it regards to safe sex? There are all considerations that need to be made before the decision is made, said Campbell. Right now, Shorewood High School has a partnership with International Community Health Services, a community clinic just blocks away from campus. This is where teenagers can get free contraceptives and information on reproductive health. Students, like Endar and Gross, say the many students still don't know about the services at the clinic. They created a video to promote it and also launched a petition to get community support 
for free condoms on campus. So far, they've gathered more than 200 signatures. Quote, I really hope things will change, said Gross. This would make, I think this would make a significant change in the way students approach sex. Um, this is kind of, this is fascinating. Now, being from Texas, <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing that would never happen. Um, in fact, it didn't happen. Uh, there was no, my, my high school was, of course, it's Texas, so it was abstinence-based uh, sexual education, which is to say no sex education at all. Uh, <laughs> I, I think this is fascinating. I think it's interesting that it's coming from students. Um, yeah, I support it. I, I think it's probably a good thing. Um, I understand why people would be against it, though. Uh, I, I am not a person who supports the ideas of schools, uh, I think, pushing kids towards sex, which a lot of, a lot of the response to abstinence-only sex educations tend to be very reactionary, where rather than simply educating kids about sex, they tell them, like, how great and wonderful and blah, blah, blah it is, and it is great and wonderful. But there are kids in high school that simply are not mature enough to be having sex. They're just not. Um, I was one of them. <laughs> it didn't stop me. But, I mean, I was one. I don't think it's the state's place to tell kids to have sex. That's, that's again, I've seen it where, where the response to absence-only sex education is sometimes encouraging kids to have sex. And I don't think that's the right answer either. This, though, I don't see as that kind of encouragement. Um, the kids who are going to do it can take advantage of the free contraceptives. The kids who aren't don't have to. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm in support of this, I think. I think. Unless someone can make an argument as to why I shouldn't be. In which case, I'll consider that. The next story, also from the Discord, this one comes from Mr. Sue. The great and wonderful Mr. Sue from RT. France wants more government regulation of Facebook, and Zuckerberg calls it a model approach. This is published on the 10th of May, edited on the 11th. Uh, the French government is pushing for greater regulation of Facebook and other platforms in order to combat what it calls hate speech, according to the State Commission report published as CEO Mark Zuckerberg visits Paris. The report, issued by the French Minister for Digital Economy, Cedric O, found that the social media companies were allowing abuses, quotes, to take place on their platforms, particularly in the area of hateful or bigoted speech, that the companies had not done enough to address the problems. Uh, there's a quote from Cedric O. Public intervention to ensure that the major players adopt a more responsible attitude protecting the cohesion of our societies is therefore legitimate, the report said. Oh, that wasn't a tweet. My bad. Though the report noted that the government would, quote, aim for minimum intervention, it said the previous attempts at private self-regulation were not sufficient. The regulators added the government should look to strike a balance between repressive policies that react to hate speech after the fact and a more preventative ones that start with the company's policies. The report said that the, quote, lawfulness of content would be decided on in courts and specifically requested closer oversight of social media platforms, algorithms which, uh, social media platforms' algorithms which auto-detect supposedly hateful content. French President Emmanuel Macron, a major advocate for greater regulation of the web, met with Facebook's, and no one, yeah, I wonder fucking why. Your fuck, your country is rioting against your administration and you want to censor the web. I wonder why! Met with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg on Friday to discuss some of the issues touched on in the report. Zuckerberg has also called for more government controls over the internet. After, after the meeting, Zuckerberg hailed the French president's approach as a model for other countries to follow. Quote, if more countries can follow the lead of what your government has done here, they will likely end up being a more positive outcome for the world, in my view, than some of the alternatives, he, the, he told reporters at Facebook's Paris office. 
In January, the French digital economy minister said he was, quote, 100% in agreement with Zuckerberg's previous calls for regulation, but complained that Facebook's growing size and power was creating a, quote, huge democratic problem. Quote, Facebook decides what, uh, that something online is legal or not legal and, quote, plays the role of justice, O told AFP last year. Facebook took steps on its own in 2018 to censor, quote, misleading content it said contributed to violence and more recently announced that white nationalist content would be white from the site. The company also faced claims of censorship this month when it banned controversial figures including Alex Jones, Miley Yiannopoulos, and Louis Farrakhan, citing violations of its community standards. Facebook has seen heavy criticism on a number of other fronts in recent years. Some were outraged when the company struggled to keep videos of the Christchurch massacre off its website, while lawmakers in countries around the world have called for tighter control of the platform over the, uh, over the spread of fake news. Jesus! Oh, God. Uh, this is just, this is getting out of control, man. We need the peer-to-peer encrypted web, and we need it yesterday. I'll say that. <laughs> uh, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. And I'll say it again. We need the peer-to-peer encrypted web, and we need it yesterday. It's coming. It's coming. But slowly. I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to rush developers who are doing this work largely for free, but come on, guys, we need this. <laughs> and we need it bad. The next story is uh, kind of related to this. Reclaimthenet.org. This was posted on May 10th and written by D. Rankovic. The company behind Adblock Plus just backed Fact Media, another fact-checking company that wants to profit on being arbiters of truth. There is nowadays sadly precious little about the Adblock brand that conveys much trust or even just plain basic reassurance among internet users, especially the more savvy ones. In other words, these days Adblock is left in the dust uh, is left in the dust behind its more resource-friendly and policy-transparent competitors, ones that a majority of users appear to have moved on to in order to filter out unwanted advertising and resource-hungry online technologies. These alternatives include the likes of uBlock Origin, a hot commodity among those seeking to protect themselves against privacy-invasive online advertising and tracking. I personally use Ghostery. I'm a big fan of the Ghostery extension. And while Adblock, originally designed to filter content on the web to the benefit of the end user, had been something of a pioneer in its field way back when, it has since let its, gu- uh, let its guard, its business model, and by extension its users, dangerously down. Thus, back in 2011, Adblock Plus and IOGMBH, the Germany-based software company behind it, caused considerable controversy among their users when they introduced the Acceptable Ads program that allowed, i.e. whitelisted, the likes of Google AdWords by default into a supposedly ad-free browser the extension was installed on. But there was a business model behind this self-styled web gatekeeper role, the focus of which seemed to be on making money off large advertising companies by allowing them to do as they please at the expense of, at that point, trusting adblock users. However, whether casual or professional, whether diving deep into the technologies behind the web or not interested at all in how that particular sausage gets made, the joint overarching interest of all internet users should by now be one and the same. First, let the web, uh, first let the web do you no harm. First, protect yourself from invasive tracking and or advertising. Those are two things. Both of them can't be first. I'm not the biggest fan of whoever edited this. Fast forward to 2019, and now Adblock says IO, such as they are, are funding another, at this time largely vague and unvenerable industry, that of news fact-checking. At the helm of this particular and somewhat ragtag joint enterprise, dubbed Factmata, Factmata, are a host of internet has-beens, the web's early entrepreneurs, some of whom have become very rich thanks to the late 90s dot-com bubble, but who have also pretty much gone without an innovative or indeed useful tech industry thought, not to mention project, attributed to their names for the past 20-plus years. 
be that as it may, Interfact Mata, Fact Mata, a London startup backed by BizStone, Craig Newmark, Mark Cuban, Mark Pincus, and others. Mark Cuban. Fact Mata, Fact Mata is now in charge of Trusted News, a Google Chrome extension that, according to the website, checks and then tells its users whether a story on the web might be legitimate or wrong. But fact-checking these days is controversial. This is because the political and ideological divide in the United States and well beyond makes any attempt to bring in verified groups to pass judgment on what's fake and what's real in the news domain. Seems doomed from the very start. Man, this editor needs to learn to edit. As those holding opposing views invariably and often convincingly argue against each other. In the end, the ruling might depressingly come down to it. Stop using adjectives this way. Come down to a platform's own ideological bias. And given the billions served by major tech enterprises across the world, the, ro the role of fake or real news arbiter cannot be a comfortable or indeed a credible and trust or trustworthy and trustworthy, they say, spot to occupy. But it might still prove to be lucrative. Fact matter, fact matter. Meanwhile, might gain or lose some of its credibility from the fact that its CEO, Dhruv Gulati, founded the company with Sebastian Rydell, himself a fake news fighting pioneer, whose other effort to this end, Bloomsbury AI, was acquired by none other than Facebook last year, the report revealed. Naturally, this is not to say that FactMata FactMata and its founders might not be undergoing an epiphany just now and end up provo uh, proving to be a credible authority in the fact-checking business now that it's all the rage. Alternatively, they might be looking for a politically and ideologically opportunistic chance to use the web and everyone on it to spring their failed tech careers back to life. Only time will tell. I'm... This is, uh, this is meant to be, frankly, a launch board into a discussion about this kind of fact-checking. Um, we know that Facebook's system is bullshit. Facebook's news fact-checking system is absolute hot garbage. Um, and upsetting, frankly. It, it's upsetting to see what they do uh, in order to fact-check uh, <laughs> uh, news that's written and, and posted to Facebook. Then you have things like Gab, and, and they released the dissenter extension to basically um basically to tell people you don't get to turn off comment sections we'll just put it in an extension here you go um which i i think is a project that is hilarious it's the greatest troll it's the greatest troll i think that's ever been pulled against the likes of um i think it was like popular science that pulled down comment sections and things like that um it's a really good troll i love it i, I love dissenter i don't use it I just love the idea, and I don't use it, frankly, because it's Gab, and I don't like Gab. I do not like Gab. I don't like them. Uh, I don't like them because they're kind of antithetical to the web that I want. Uh, I don't like them for the same reasons I don't like Twitter. Um, I also don't like Gab because, look, Gab is a toxic atmosphere. It's not a great place to be. Um, it's really not, not a great place to be. I don't like using Gab when I'm on Gab. At least I like using Minds when I'm on Minds. Um, because the people on there who are crazy are also funny crazy, whereas the people on Gab who are crazy are scary crazy. Every place is going to have its subset of crazies, but the crazies on other places are different from the crazies on Gab. Um, and the crazies on Gab are loud. Uh, just, I suppose, as they are anywhere else. I just don't like using Gab. I just don't like using it. Sorry, I don't. Um, but I do love the idea of dissenter. And it's, I don't know. I don't know, guys. Uh, this this fact-checking thing is... It's a grift, right? Isn't it? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is just a grift. The whole, the whole enterprise. Facebook, whoever. It's, it's gotta be a grift. 
because there's no other, I don't know. It's almost always politically motivated. From PJ Media, this is an older story published on May the 12th, written by Tyler O'Neill. Expert psychologists blocked on Twitter for expressing clinical opinion on transgenderism. Now, this piece is very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Part of the reason I picked the PJ Media article is because it has an update on it. In the early hours of Sunday morning, an expert PhD psychologist who helped write the official psychological position on transgender identity was blocked on Twitter for expressing his opinion. Informed blocked is not the right word to use. They're suspended, I believe, is the right word. For expressing his opinion informed by clinical experience, his well-reasoned position was flagged for, quote, hateful conduct. On Saturday, Ray Blanchard, the PhD psychologist and adjunct professor at the University of Toronto who served in the working group for gender dysphoria, the persistent condition of identifying with a gender opposite your biological sex, for the DSM-5, the gold standard of definitions helping psychologists diagnose disorders for patients, tweeted out his clinically informed opinion on transgender identity. Um, their characterization of the DSM-5 is not quite right. They call it the gold standard of definitions helping psychologists diagnose disorders for patients. It's not the gold standard, it's the fucking Bible. This is the goddamn Bible for these people. If you, if you, I listened to a couple of podcasts from psychologists, I've, uh, I've talked to many psychologists in both professional and non-professional, uh, 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 contexts. Um, I've written articles that I've sent to people who are professionals in this field and asked for verification that my presuppositions in the articles were correct psychologically, that they were in line with psychological science as we know it. I've talked to these people. The DSM-5 is the fucking Bible, not the gold standard. It's the Bible. He still affirmed the controversial idea that sex change surgery is the, quote, best treatment for, quote, carefully screened adult patients whose gender dysphoria has proven resistant to other forms of treatment, but he opposed, quote, treating children who may change their minds, even this position is debatable, as people who have undergone sex change surgery after persistent gender dysphoria have later rejected their transgender identity and lamented uh, the, they call it mutilation, of their bodies. I don't necessarily believe it's mutilation. Uh, is it mutilation to have a, an elective surgery done? I don't, I, don't, I don't like the use of that word in that case. Female genital mutilation and a sex change are not the same fucking thing. <laughs> so maybe let's find a different fucking word. Um, after this qualified statement of support, Blanchard explained his clinically informed opinion that, quote, sex change surgery should not be considered for any patient until that patient has reached the age of 21 years and has lived for at least two years in the desired gender role. That's probably a good rule, don't you think? Maybe not. I mean, I'm not talking about a law. I'm talking about, like, giving people advice. Like, if you're going to give somebody advice, someone with dysphoria, if you're going to give them advice, this sounds like good advice. Live that way for a few years. Make sure you're comfortable with it. It's the exact same advice. Let me tell you this. It's the exact same advice that was given to me by an art teacher about tattoos. I I was designing tattoos in high school um, that I was going to get, and I did end up getting one of them. Um, And more of them I'm still going to get. I just don't have any money. But what I did with this tattoo design was I hung it up on my wall. Now, the, the advice that I was given was to hang up the design when you design your tattoo. And it's, this is easy for artists because you can just draw something and hang it up. When you design a tattoo, hang it up on the wall where you're going to see it every day and make sure that you're happy seeing it every day for six months. And if at the end of six months you don't want to redesign it, you're happy with it, you think you could look at it every day and be, and be comfortable with that because you've looked at it for the past six months and not overly criticized it or not, not found fault with it, then get the tattoo. It's cool. I think, I think you have a, a very similar piece of advice that you could give uh, people with dysphoria. 
And I think this makes sense. Sex change surgery should not be considered for any patient uh, until that patient has reached the age of 21 years and has lived for at least two years in the desired gender role. Yeah. Live that way for a bit. Live that way for a bit. Make sure you're okay with it. Um, that sounds like sound advice to me. This call for a delay is controversial. As many transgender activists encourage hormonal and surgical treatments for minors, even children. Some t- I don't know about the word many there, but it's true. I have seen it. Some researchers have received government grants to try such treatments on eight-year-old children. That's hyperlinked. And a British transgender activist took her 15-year-old son to Thailand to get him castrated. When a Catholic... Ah, define castrated there. See, this is the problem with using PJ Media as a source. Um, when a Catholic woman complained about his child abuse on Twitter, UK police investigated her for... A uh, Catholic woman complained about this child abuse on Twitter. UK police investigated her for abuse. Last year, 17-year-old transgender celebrity Jazz Jennings had his male organs surgically removed, yet studies have shown that the vast majority of children who identify as trans children will revert to their biological sex if they're allowed to go through puberty. For this and other reasons, Blanche's position makes sense psychologically. Um, I don't know. That's not hyperlinked to a source, but... And also, that seems kind of like kind of a long-term study. Um, I don't know about that. Anyway, one of the tweets is embedded. Sex change surgery should not be considered for any patient until that patient has reached 21 years and has lived for at least two years in the desired gender role. Blanchard defended his restriction by explaining the roots of gender dysphoria. Quote, gender dysphoria is not a sexual orientation. It is virtually always preceded or accompanied by an atypical sexual orientation in males, either homosexuality, sexual aroused by members of one's own biological sex, or autogynephilia, sexual aroused by the thought or image of oneself as a female. The PhD psychologist explained there are two main types of gender dysphoria in males, one associated with homosexuality and one associated with autogynephilia. Traditionally, the great bulk of female-to-male transsexuals has been homosexual in erotic object choice. While activists may find this offensive, Blanchard correctly referenced the true statistics on gender dysphoria. Although the PhD psychologist supported sex change surgery for 20-year-old adults whose gender dysphoria had persisted against other forms of treatment, he acknowledged that the most operative transgender individuals are not biologically male or female beneath the surgical changes. Or, I'm sorry, are still biologically male or female beneath the surgical changes. No matter how good transgender surgery gets, a biological male still has an X and Y chromosome in virtually every cell of his body, and the biological female still has two X chromosomes. No surgery identity can alter this. Ostensibly for this reason, Blanchard took a nuanced scientific approach. Quote, The sex of a post-operative transsexual should be analogous to legal fiction, he tweeted. This legal fiction would apply to some things, e.g. sex designation on a driver's license, but not to others. Entering a sports competition is one's adopted sex. This approach takes into consideration both the true struggles of those with gender dysphoria and the concerns of conservatives and feminists who warn to uh, who warn that full social inclusion for transgender identity would allow biological males to invade women's spaces, bringing in their natural advantages of strength with them. For instance, men who identify as women have displaced high-performing females and won world records in women's sports. Voyeurs have spied upon women in bathrooms and training rooms, and it's hyperlinks, but that's not very common. Posing as transgender, men who identify as women have sexually assaulted women in women's prisons. Uh, I'd like to see statistics on that. It seems, that seems fascinating. Rare, but fascinating. Blanchard's position showed a true understanding of these issues and clinical support for what he sees as the proper treatment for gender sport people. Activists can disagree with him, but his positions are scientifically based, rational, and based on his professional experience. I'm going to stop reading this article here because dude got kicked from Twitter for this. I'm going to scroll down to the update. After about 24 hours, Twitter freed Blanchard from Twitter jail and apologized, quote, for any inconvenience this may have caused. Yet to some degree, this is a non-apology. The company went on to defend its error, saying, quote, Twitter takes reports of violations of Twitter rules very seriously. After reviewing your account, it looks like I made an error. And then the tweet from Red Blanchard, Twitter has unlocked my account and graciously apologized for their error. My sincere thanks to people who expressed their concern during the past 24 hours. 
from the story. It looks like you made an error. You banned a PhD psychologist who helps write who helped write the book on gender dysphoria for his clinical opinion on gender dysphoria and transgender identity. More than this is required. So that is an older story, but yes, the man who wrote the gender dysphoria passage in the DSM-5 was kicked from Twitter for his opinion on gender dysphoria, even though that's his field of expertise. Fascinating stuff. I don't want, I don't know if I want to read this piece. It was published on May 14th, written by Stacey Matthews to Legal Insurrection. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand blames her campaign's failures on gender... I'm sorry, on gender bias. I'm not going to read that. That's not very interesting to me. Kirsten Gillibrand says that men are why she sucks. <laughs> That's the long and short of it. Okay, so the 21st of May, written by Jacob Solom, to reason, again, the, uh, the former hit-and-run blog, the hit-and-run blog is dead, long live the hit-and-run blog, I like this story a lot. A sniff by a pot detecting dog requires probable cause and does not justify a search, says Colorado Supreme Court. Marijuana legalization changes the constitutional status of canine olfactory uh, inspections. Drug sniffing dogs in states that have legalized marijuana should be worried about their drop security in light of a decision in the Colorado Supreme Court issued yesterday. Confirming the 2017 judgment of a state appeals court, the justice said an alert by a dog trained to detect marijuana as well as other drugs no longer provides probable cause for search in Colorado. <laughs> Where possessing an ounce or less of cannabis has been legal for adults 21 and over since 2012. Furthermore, the court ruled in Colorado v. McKnight deploying such a dog itself counts as a search and therefore requires probable cause to believe a crime has been committed. You go, Colorado. Denver over here with shrooms. Colorado telling drug dogs to hit the bricks. I love this shit. The case involved Kevin McKnight, who in 2015 was pulled over in Craig, Colorado by Captain, I'm um, sorry, Corporal Brian Gonzalez, ostensibly for failing to signal a turn. Gonzalez had been following McKnight because of behavior he deemed suspicious. He saw McKnight's pickup truck parked the wrong way in an alley near an apartment complex as a man stood by the passenger door. Although Gonzalez, quote, saw no behavior consistent with an exchange or transaction, he followed the truck to, quote, a residence where police had found drugs almost two months earlier, and it remained parked there for approximately 15 minutes. Uh, I parked somewhere where you guys found drugs. Drugs are fucking everywhere, so I guess that's probable cause for you to follow me forever. Fuck off. During which time, no one left the house or the truck. When Gonzalez stopped McKnight, he, quote, recognized the passenger as someone who had used methamphetamine at some point in the past, but he was not sure how recently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at him. He looks like a meth addict. He, he's, he must have used meth at some point in the past. Gonzalez called Sergeant Cortland Folks, the Moffat County uh, of the Moffat County Sheriff's Office, who arrived with Kilo, a, a that's a fucking ironic name, a dog trained to bark when he smells marijuana, methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, or MDMA. Kilo barked at the driver's door, prompting a search that discovered a pipe with methamphetamine residue in a storage compartment under the rear seat. After McKnight was convicted of possessing methamphetamine and drug paraphernalia, he, he appealed, arguing that Kilo's barking could not justify a search and that police needed more evidence to use the dog in the first place. The Colorado Supreme Court agreed on both points, overturning his convictions. The U.S. Supreme Court, whose Fourth Amendment reasoning the Colorado Supreme Court has largely followed in applying the state's constitution's ban on unreasonable searches and seizures, has long maintained that an olfactory sweep by a drug-detecting dog does not count as a search because it reveals only the presence of contraband, a fact that people have no legitimate privacy interest in concealing. The court has also held that such a dog's alert by itself is enough to justify a vehicle search, 
which requires probable cause but not a warrant under the automobile exception to the warrant requirement. As the Colorado Supreme Court observed, neither of these assumptions holds true any longer in Colorado. Quote, marijuana is not only decriminalized in Colorado, it is legalized, regulated, and taxed, the court said. Furthermore, Colorado's regulation initiative amended the state constitution to say that possessing an ounce or less of marijuana in public is not, is quote, not unlawful and shall be an, and shall not be an offense under Colorado law. Hence, cannabis consumers, quote, have a state constitutional right not guaranteed by the federal constitution. Since Kilo's barking could have indicated nothing more than a legal quantity of marijuana, the court said, it did not provide probable cause for a search, even when combined with Captain Gonzalez's vague suspicions and leaving aside all of the other reasons to question the accuracy of the police dog's purported response to car odors. Uh, that's hyperlinked. Police dogs fucking suck at their job. Uh, since Kilo's sniffing can reveal information about legal but, poten but potentially sensitive conduct, the court added it qualifies as a search in itself. Quote, because persons 21 or older may lawfully possess marijuana in small amounts, a drug detection dog that alerts to even the slightest amount of marijuana can no longer be said to detect only contraband, the majority said. An, ex an exploratory sniff from a car of a car from a dog trained to alert to a substance may be lawfully possessed, uh, that may be lawfully possessed violates a person's reasonable expectation of privacy in lawfully possessing that item. Because there was no way to know whether Kilo was alerting to awful, uh, lawful marijuana or unlawful contraband, Kilo Sniff violated McKnight's reasonable expectation of privacy. Therefore, under the state law, Kilo Sniff was a search, and that had to be constitutionally justified. Since it wasn't the court reason, the sniff was illegal under Colorado's constitution. So was in the ensuing car search, meaning that the evidence it discovered should not have been admitted to McKnight, should not have been convicted. Quote, we are the first court to opine on whether the sniff of a dog trained to detect marijuana in addition to other substances is a search under a state constitution in a state that has legalized marijuana, just as noted, but we probably won't be the last. If Colorado police officers continue to deploy marijuana detecting dogs, they will not be very helpful as an end run around privacy protections, since cops will need probable cause to justify the use of a tool that is supposed to provide probable cause, but no longer does, except in conjunction with other evidence. In theory, a dog can be trained to stop alerting to marijuana, but it's not that easy or cheap. And to be reliable, a retrained dog requires periodic testing to show it continues to ignore pot. Alternatively, pot-snipping dogs can be replaced by newly trained animals that are not taught to detect marijuana. Lest you think that the need for such expenditures means marijuana legalization costs taxpayers money, note that drug dogs cost up to $10,000 each, or roughly what the government spends on a couple of pot busts. Colorado is the new Texas. I'm saying it now. Texas is over. Colorado's the new Texas. Texas is going to go down in flames because Austin, mostly, and all the fucking Californians coming over here. Colorado's the new Texas. It's over. It's done. If I had a gavel, I would bang it. Colorado wins. Oh, man. That was a lot of news. You know what I feel like doing? Brothers will do fun. It's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? I'll tell you who I trust. I trust the magnanimous individuals over there donating to the show at Subscribestar. First up, we have our superior executive producer, Mr. Xerci. Following after that, we have the man who's been with us forever, Mr. Max Ogburn. And the lovely and incredible absurdist fool you three individuals are responsible for keeping this show alive and you're responsible for the announcement i'm going to be make making here in a little bit um i want to thank you three so much seriously max ogburn who's been with us forever and 
the lovely Absurdist Fool. I want to thank you guys so much for showing your support for the show. It means everything to me. And I don't know. I, I, I can't thank you guys enough. You're all lovely, wonderful, incredible people. Wolves amongst ravens, gods amongst men. And hopefully you're going to like what I have to say next. So, I mentioned a few episodes ago that I was thinking about doing more book review stuff, and I was looking for audiobooks or recorded manuscripts, anything, of a few different pieces. I was looking for The Constitutional Authority by Lysander Spinner, and I was looking for... Um, an inquiry concerning political justice and its effects on uh, general virtues and happiness by William Godwin. And they don't exist, especially the Godwin piece, which is the one that I wanted to do the most. Um, and I'll explain why here in a minute. But they don't exist. Nobody's made audiobooks of these things. Nobody's, nobody's sat down and, 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 and nobody thinks these are important enough to make audiobooks of, I guess. There's no money to be made. They're in, they are in the public domain. These books are well in the public domain. Inquiry Concerning Political Justice was written in 1793. These are well in the public domain. There's no money to be made off selling them. And there's no money to be made off of making an audiobook. So, I got to thinking, if there's no money to be made, why not somebody who does shit for free? Why, why, why shouldn't somebody like that just make one? I've been recording myself talking for years. I've been editing th those recordings for years. Uh, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I've watched, uh, I've watched production videos of audiobooks. I, I know how that sausage is made. Um, and I think I'm going to make some of that sausage. This is a big project and a big step. An Inquiry Concerning Political Justice is the book that I want to do. And I'll tell you why. William Godwin is incredible and amazing and... One of the greatest minds in political science and political theory, and nobody fucking knows who he is. And it's aggravating to me. Um, nobody gives him the respect he deserves. If you're an anarchist, or a particularly vehement libertarian, you owe William Godwin the legitimacy of your philosophy. An Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on General Virtue and Happiness was the first piece of modern philosophical writing dealing with anarchism. And it was huge, especially in its day. Followed immediately after the French Revolution, followed very soon after the American Revolutions, and I'm going to go to just one little piece of it. Let me look real quick. I, I, wanna, I wanna read to you the kinds of things that William Godwin was writing in the 1790s. Uh, at one point before book one, he goes through the principles that he's going to be dealing with throughout uh, Inquiry Concerning Political Justice. Number two, the most desirable condition of the human species is a state of society. The injustice and violence of men in a state of society produced the demand for government. Government, as it was forced upon mankind by their vices, so has it commonly been the creature of their ignorance and mistake. Government was intended to suppress injustice, but it offers new occasions and temptations for the commission of it. By concentrating on the force of the community, it gives occasion to wild prospect, uh, projects of calamity, to oppression, despotism, war, and conquest. 
By perpetuating and aggravating the inequality of property, it fosters many injurious passions and excites men to the practice of robbery and fraud. Government was intended to suppress injustice, but its effect has been to embody and perpetuate it. 1790-fucking-three. And nobody knows this man's name. Nobody. Nobody knows his name, and it's, it, it blows me away that nobody knows his name for a lot of reasons, not the least of which I'll get into here in a minute, but I can't reasonably start analyzing Spooner before Godwin. I can't do it for two reasons. The first reason that I can't do it is because I, and this is purely emotional, I feel the need to start where it started. I feel the need to start with Godwin because Godwin was the first. And it's not like his ideas were brand new. Everything is an idea on top of an idea on top of an idea, standing on shoulders of giants, blah, 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 all that shit. Inquiry concerning political justice was the first modern work that said what we say, that human beings can live together voluntarily and in peace without the sword of Damocles over our heads all the goddamn time. He was number one. There are a lot of anarchists who think that the legitimization of anarchism as a philosophy started with, like, Rothbard, which is very wrong. There are a lot of anarchists who think it started with Spooner, which is less wrong, but still wrong. It started here with Godwin. He's our granddad. And if we're going to discover where we come from, we have to start there. If we're going to analyze how these ideas have evolved, we have to start there. There are three editions of Inquiry Concerning Political Justice. I'm going to be reading the third. Uh, I'm going to be reading the third for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that Godwin was constantly revising. He was constantly fixing things. Um, and, and he was constantly thinking about these issues such that he found himself to be wrong a lot. And he would go back and he would edit Inquiry and then he would release it again. Three editions. I'm going to be reading from the third because it's the most distilled. It's the most sort of uh, thought through version of it. Now, earlier editions are very interesting because especially the first edition. Fascinating, because William Godwin was publishing this. This was being published as it was being written, meaning Godwin would write a book or a chapter or whatever. It would immediately go off to the printer and be printed. You can see, while reading Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, you can see where he starts off thinking one way, and as he continues to write and as he continues to think, he'll say things that completely contradict things that he said in the beginning of the book. And he says things in later editions that tend to contradict things that he said in the first edition. Uh, one great example of this is the, the, some of his uh, opinions on property. He started out as kind of a um, uh, sort of a socialist, I would say. Not quite a communist, but a socialist in his conception of property early on, um, especially in the first edition. And then in the third edition, he's decided maybe that's not the way to be. And he's been a little bit more individualist in his conception of property. So it's, it's fascinating work. It's fascinating stuff. And it is the root of this philosophy. If you kill anarchism, if you want to kill anarchism, you have to kill Godwin. And frankly, I don't think Godwin's killable. Because inquiry concerning political justice is about as watertight as anything Spooner wrote. Nobody knows the man's name. It's a travesty. So what I'm going to do here, I'm, 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 I want you guys to sort of understand why I'm doing this and what exactly I'm going to be doing. I am going to be making this audiobook, which means I'm going to be recording myself reading this book, and I'm going to be editing those recordings heavily so that it flows, 
you know, the way an audiobook flows, uh, the edit work that's done. Audiobooks are made in the edit. Um, the edit work that's done on audiobooks is intense, and I'm going to be doing a lot of intense editing. Um, there are, I believe, eight or nine, I believe it's eight books in Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, the longest of which is 24 chapters. That is roughly twice as long as some of the other books. Um, that book is probably going to have to be released in two parts. It's 24 chapters long. That's a lot of shit. But I think this project is going to take me 10 to 12 weeks. Toward the end of that, if all goes well, I'll be going to law school, which means that I'll be spending several days packing up my house, moving, getting to school, getting lined out there. Production is going to slow. It's going to slow for everything. The podcast, for the audiobook, everything. But I think... Even if that, ha- even when that happens, it's not an if, that's a win. Even when that happens, I should be so close to done that, you know, why, why not finish it? I don't think it'll stop me, is what I'm saying. So there will be a production slowdown later on if all goes well and I end up going to law school. But that's not the point. The point is, this is probably going to take about 10 to 12 weeks, maybe a couple of more if I can't record while I'm moving. Um, and I feel like it needs to be done. This doesn't exist anywhere. When it's finished, I'm going to upload it, or I'm going to make it available on LibriVox, which is a place where people make available um, public domain audiobooks. So I'll make it available there. I won't be able to publish it on Audible because in order to publish on Audible, you have to have a book published on Amazon. And frankly, I'm not going to re-edit this book. I'm not going to re-edit Inquiry Concerning Political Justice so I can, like, legally and... um, so I'm not really legal. So I can follow Amazon's rules in uploading a public domain work. I'm not going to go through and re-edit this and do all that work. I'm not going to do it. Um, what I will do is make it available on LibriVox. If you guys aren't familiar with LibriVox, go check it out. It's actually really cool. Um, public domain audiobooks recorded by the community, basically. Um, but I'm going to be doing this on my own. This is going to be hours and hours and hours of work. Uh, probably going to be between um 20 and 45 minutes to record a chapter of which there are about 10 to 14 and the longest book is 24 per book there are eight books in the piece and on top of recording time edit time and it's probably going to take between 45 minutes and an hour to edit a chapter uh maybe even slightly longer but i want to release a book or a a worthwhile chunk of a book the longer books probably about half I want to release this semi-weekly, kind of. I want to get this on the podcast feed along with the regular show. I want to have this uploaded once a week. Maybe not the same day every week, but like once a week, roughly. Maybe Monday one week, and maybe it's Thursday the next week. But, you know, roughly once once a week is what I want to do with this. Uh, hopefully a book per upload so that it will be eight or nine, depending on what books I have to split. It could be eight, nine, ten uploads. Um, and then I'm going to miss a couple of weeks, especially when I have to get packed up and move. So I'm thinking 10 to 12 weeks is what this is going to take. Uh, and I'm doing this because I not only do I want to give you guys some more content, but I also I think this is important. This work is important. So in that spirit, I was going to do this on the first upload, which should be hitting near the end of next week, but I'm not going to do it there. I want to do it here instead. I want to give you guys a little bit of information about William Godwin, who he was, what he thought, all this stuff. William Godwin was born in 1756. He died 
1836. He wrote a lot of stuff. He wrote uh, several popular novels, one of which my mom actually had to read when she was in graduate school. She had to read The Adventures of Caleb Williams, which is his most popular novel. He wrote Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, which is pretty much his most well-known piece, but he also wrote things like Of Population, which was a knockdown, drag-out response to Thomas Malthus, who wrote his piece. Actually, Thomas Malthus wrote the, 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 the kernel, the, the primary seed of Malthusian population theory. Thomas Malthus wrote in response to an inquiry concerning political justice, in part. And then Godwin says, okay, motherfucker, and then he writes of population, which is a knockdown, drag-out evisceration of Thomas Malthus. Malthus responded, and the response was relatively weak, in my opinion, but I also hate Malthus, so maybe I'm wrong. Not only did he write uh, about politics and political theory and philosophy, he also fathered one of the greatest authors of all time. His wife was Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Wollstonecraft was a feminist writer who he married in uh, 1797. Mary Wollstonecraft wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. This is one of the very first feminist books on feminist theory, and it was focused primarily on the need to educate women, which is something that sociologists, even today, say is believe is incredibly important, and it has been borne out that statistically, societies are better, are better off if women are educated. Starts there, with Mary Wollstonecraft. Mary Wollstonecraft uh, wrote much, much more than that. After her death, William Godwin wrote a biography of her life and a compilation of her work. Um, and he, he loved her. He really, really loved her. Mary Wollstonecraft died in childbirth. Her child, the daughter of William Godwin and Mary, and Mary Wollstonecraft, was Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley was the author of Frankenstein, the book that defined the gothic horror genre. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein when she was basically hanging out at a lake house belonging to Lord Byron with her. Then I believe he might have been her husband. I can't remember quite uh, for sure. Percy Bysshe Shelley. I'm not sure if they were married yet at that point. Percy Bysshe Shelley was a romantic poet. He himself has quite a legacy in literature. And it depends on the source, but I'm fascinated by the sources that say that Percy Bysshe Shelley was a fan of William Godwin before he was a fan of William Godwin's daughter. Uh, he wrote a poem called The Mask of Anarchy and, and several other poems uh, and pieces which had very much to do with William Godwin's political ideas. So William Godwin, the man who wrote the first piece of modern anarchist theory, married to Mary Wollstonecraft, one of the earliest feminists and an integral part of the feminist movement. Uh, I believe without her, it doesn't happen the same way. Because Mary Wollstonecraft, if you read her work, she's, oh God, she's so fucking smart. Um, and they together created Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, the book that defined a genre. There's something very, very special about this family. There's something very, very special about these people. And William Godwin is, I've said it before, William Godwin's where it starts for us philosophically. And because of that, I want to do this. So hopefully you know who this guy is a little better now. Hopefully you're a little more familiar with, with William Godwin, with his legacy, which is far-reaching, far more far-reaching than many people are aware of 
especially anarchists, which is sad, frankly. He's incredible. And I want to pay him the respect he deserves. I want to pay his philosophies the respect that they deserve. And I want anarchists to know his fucking name. So I'm going to be making an audiobook. <laughs> this is probably the biggest project I've ever taken on. Um, it's going to be difficult. I'm not sure how much more difficult it's going to be than I suspect. But, of course, there are going to be things that come up that make it harder. Uh, but I believe I can do it. Um, I'm trying to manage expectations, my own expectations of what I'm able to do. Because, again, this isn't a weekend project. This is 10 to 12, maybe a couple more weeks of recording and editing, recording and editing every day for that entire time. Um, my goal is to do about a chapter and a half a week. Um, not in a week, I'm sorry, uh, a day. If I can record on average a chapter and a half a day, maybe do one chapter one day, two chapters the next day, you know, things like that, get, get that kind of work interspersed. If I can do that, I should be on target for finishing it in uh, early, early September, late August, probably early September, first half of September. Uh, if it's in August, it'll be very, very late August. Probably the first half of September will be when this thing's finished. That's a lot of work. <laughs> um, it's a, it's going to be a lot of work. Um, but I hope that you guys are willing to stick with me through it. Um, I believe it needs to be done. And if not me, then who? This is an important piece of work. Uh, you're all podcast listeners. Uh, many people that I know are podcast listeners. And if there's any Venn diagram that's practically a circle unto itself, it's probably people who listen to podcasts and audiobooks. And so I'm, I'm, this needs to be known. If I can get more more anarchists to listen to William Godwin, to understand William Godwin, then maybe anarchism can be a little bit better understood generally, and we can understand ourselves a little better as as people who think in this way. Um, I want to do the same with Spooner. Depending on how this goes, and I, I suspect that this will be an arduous but rewarding process, depending on how this goes, I'd like to do the same thing with... Uh, with some Spooner work. I'd like to do the same thing with No Treason. I'd like to do the same thing with some of Spooner's smaller, smaller works. Things like uh, um, Poverty, It's Illegal Causes, and Legal Cure. Things like that. Fascinating little works that he's put out. I'd like to do the same thing with stuff like that. I want these libraries filled out, and I want these things available to people. And again, if not me, then who? So this is going to be a massive project. It's going to take a long time. Uh, as I said, I hope that you guys can stick with me through it. Um, and, and because frankly, it's because of the people who listen to the show that I have the, that I have the confidence that I can make this happen because I really do believe I can. It's going to be a lot of work, a lot of editing because I flub a lot when I read. <laughs> so it's going to be a lot of reading and rereading and then a lot of editing, uh, especially because Godwin's vocabulary is out of this freaking world. But that's the plan. It'll be released to the feed, and then I will release the entire thing on LibriVox when it is finished. Um, I, I really want you guys to enjoy it. I really want you to enjoy it, because this guy is important, and his ideas are not old. His ideas are, are just as relevant today as they were when he wrote them. So that's the primary purpose of this, is to, is to make sure that those ideas get heard by the maximum number of people, and people who can appreciate him, because Godwin's underappreciated. He deserves all the love in the world, and he gets nothing. So, thank you all for listening. I, I hope that you're looking forward to this project as much as I am. It's going to be, again, a lot of work. 
but I believe I can make it happen. I think I've managed expectations well enough for myself and also for you. Uh, I guess I'll see you guys next week. I want to thank everybody who hung out in the chat and kept me on my toes during this recording. You can do that every week, AIRAD.io slash live. I want to thank everybody who listens to the show, everybody who downloads the show, everybody who rates us and gives us a review on whatever platform you listen on. I want to thank the producers, all you glorious and magnanimous people who support this show. You can do that on AIRAD.io or on the Rogue File, roguefile.com slash donate. Uh, You can find the things that I write on the Rogue File, roguefile.com. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Dean O Files. You can find the network on Twitter at AltNet Radio. Go ahead and give us a follow there. I love every single one of you glorious freaks, and I will be back with you next week. Y'all have a great week. This has been an alternative internet radio production. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io. That's AIRAD.io.